Welcome to the Hands Up, Don't Shoot podcast, where I, your host, Ashley France Howell, tell the stories of Black victims of police brutality. You can support the show by going to buymeacoffee.com slash hudspod. Today, I'm going to tell you the stories of Patrick Dorsman and Jamar Clark. Patrick Moses Dorsman was born on February 28, 1974 in Haiti. He was the son of a Haitian singer named Andre Dorsman, and his mother was Marie Dorsman. Patrick's brother is the famous Haitian musician, Bigga Haitian. He was raised in the Flatbush neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York, and he had two daughters who were five and one at the time of his death. Patrick worked as a security guard for the 34th Street Partnership, also known as 34SP, starting in 1998. So 34SP is a nonprofit that provides sanitation and security for a 31 block area in New York. According to Patrick's coworkers, he usually worked in Herald Square with his typical hours being about 3 to 11 p.m. Prior to the incident, being described here, Patrick had pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct, which is a low-level offense. And this was in two cases. He also had another minor offense, but it was sealed because it happened when he was 13. On March 16, 2000, members of the Gang Investigation Division's Narcotics Unit were out on the streets dressed in plain clothes trying to make some drug busts. Three detectives and the rest of their team, a supervisor and several other officers, had already made eight marijuana arrests in the area around the Port Authority bus terminal, and they had to put the suspects in a van. After his shift, Patrick changed his clothes, and he and a co-worker, Kevin Kaiser, decided to grab a beer at the Wakamba Cocktail Lounge. Around 12.30 a.m., Patrick and Kevin left, And at the same time, the three detectives were about to leave the area when they saw Patrick and Kevin. Remember, the officers were all in plain clothes and they were working the neighborhood trying to bust drug dealers. So the detectives walked up to Patrick and Kevin, who were waiting for a taxi, and asked where they could buy some marijuana. Patrick became offended when one of the detectives asked him if he had any crack cocaine. Kevin said, quote, they were asking for weed, narcotics. He brushed them off and he told them to keep moving. He didn't want to speak with them, end quote. So like usual, there are different sides to the story. According to Detective Anthony Vasquez and his partner, everything went down when Patrick threw a punch at one of the detectives. Detective Vasquez said that when he came to help his partner, he heard either Patrick or Kevin say, get his gun. Detective Vasquez claimed that he shouted, police, police, 
before pulling out his 9mm pistol. He then said that Patrick grabbed at the gun, it went off, and he was hit in the chest with a single bullet. We later learned that the point of contact was so close that the gun was actually sort of touching Patrick's body through his shirt. So that was law enforcement's side of the story. Now, we do have Kevin's side of the story as well. Five days after the shooting, a news conference was held where he told his account of what happened. Kevin said that he was standing next to Patrick when, quote, three men who appeared to seem like derelicts came up to them and asked where they could find marijuana. When Patrick brushed them off, it was actually the detective who threw the first punch, and Patrick was just trying to defend himself. He also said that they never identified themselves as law enforcement. Patrick was 26 years old. So an incident like this has to have witnesses, right? Right. Well, apparently there were witnesses, and their accounts fit more in line with Kevin's. But unfortunately, we will never know what really happened. Patrick was killed just three weeks after the acquittal of the four NYPD officers that were involved in the killing of Amadou Diallo, who I actually covered in episode 7. After the shooting, Detective Vasquez was placed on modified duty, and on the day of Patrick's funeral, thousands of people followed his coffin through the streets. Then a protest broke out. By the end, 27 people were arrested and 23 officers were injured. The shooting was investigated by the Internal Affairs Bureau and by the Manhattan District Attorney at the time, Robert Morgenthau. The investigation was concluded in July of that year, and the DA announced that a New York grand jury decided not to indict Detective Vasquez. This meant that the detective was cleared of any criminal wrongdoing, and he was justified in his actions. Because of this, he was able to return to full duty. This case definitely had a negative political impact. The mayor at the time was Rudy Giuliani, and since he couldn't run for mayor again due to the two-term limit, he was in the middle of a Senate campaign. He decided to publicly release Patrick's sealed juvenile criminal record, and he also made public a toxicology report showing that Patrick had marijuana in his system when he died. The mayor suggested that his, quote, pattern of behavior and his actions the night of the shooting had contributed to his death, end quote. Mayor Giuliani also praised Detective Vasquez, who he said, quote, put his life on the line in the middle of the night to protect the safety and security of this city, end quote. But he failed to mention that the detective had a questionable past as well. This included drawing his weapon during a bar fight, a trigger warning for animal cruelty, shooting his next-door neighbor's dog, and in 1997, his wife at the time filed an order of protection against him. 
Comments like the ones that Mayor Giuliani made and how people felt about him at the time, coupled with some personal reasons, made the Senate race an uphill battle. So he decided to withdraw. Dennis Walcott, who was the president of the New York Urban League at the time, made the following statement about the mayor. Quote, I just don't get it. The mayor at one point calls for people to suspend judgment and wait until all the facts are in. And then at the same time, the mayor and the police commissioner begin the process of demonizing an innocent man killed by a police officer. He is just creating a bigger wedge between the police and the community, end quote. Mayor Giuliani said after the grand jury decision that he wanted to, quote, extend my sympathy and my prayers to the people most affected by this, the Dorisman family, who will have a very hard time accepting this, end quote. He said he wanted to meet and reconcile with the Dorisman family, but Patrick's mother wanted nothing to do with the mayor or the district attorney, Morgenthau, who also tried offering condolences. Patrick's family, with the help of one of their lawyers, the well-known Johnny Cochran Jr., filed a $100 million civil claim against the city. In 2003, the city agreed to pay $2.25 million to Patrick's family. And that family was the story of Patrick Dorisman. Now, I'm going to tell you the story of Jamar Clark. Jamar O'Neill Clark was born on May 3, 1991 in Hennepin County, Minnesota. He was adopted by Wilma and James Clark when he was four. And while we don't know much about Jamar's childhood, we do know that despite living with his adoptive parents, he did maintain a close relationship with his biological parents and his 14 siblings. In 2015, Jamar was working at Copeland Trucking, and he was even thinking about going to college. So just a side note, Hennepin County is the same county where George Floyd would be killed five years after Jamar Clark's death. And Philando Castile, who I covered in episode 19, would be killed in the same state just one year later. On November 15, 2015, Jamar was hanging out at a friend's apartment for her birthday. Her name was Nikelia Sharp. So during the party, Nikelia and her husband had started arguing. So wanting to calm things down, Jamar's girlfriend, Rayan Hayes, tried breaking up the fight between them. But Jamar didn't want Rayan involved. So he grabbed her and tried pulling her back to stop her from getting in the fight. Then Rayanne started fighting Jamar and she ended up breaking her ankle. Paramedics were called to treat Rayanne's injury and Jamar followed Rayanne to the ambulance. At the same time, officers Mark Regenberg and Dustin Schwartz arrived on the scene. They asked Jamar to step away from the ambulance and take his hands out of his pockets, but he refused. When Jamar didn't follow their directions, they tried to arrest Jamar by wrestling him to the ground. So again, we are back to the differing stories. According to Officer Regenberg, he said that he felt his gun move from his right hip to the small of his back, 
So he reached back to the top of his gun and he said he felt Jamar's, quote, whole hand on it. He then told Officer Schwartz, quote, he's got my gun. So Officer Schwartz dropped the handcuffs and took out his own gun. He then said that he put the gun near Jamar's mouth and said, quote, let go or I'm going to shoot you, end quote. And Jamar allegedly looked at the officer and said, quote, I'm ready to die, end quote. Officer Schwartz told the investigators later on that, quote, the only thing I could think of to do was to save our lives and anyone else in the immediate area, so I pulled the trigger, end quote. Now, the gun didn't fire at first because the slide wasn't pulled all the way back. Officer Schwartz heard Officer Riggenberg telling him to shoot Jamar, so Officer Schwartz pulled the trigger again, and this time the gun fired. Different witness accounts say things happened in a few different ways. Among them include one account that said Jamar was initially arguing with the paramedics and that led the officers to intervene. There was a struggle and Jamar was shot. Another account claimed that Jamar grabbed a police officer's gun, prompting the other officer to shoot him. Nikelia said that Jamar was handcuffed and not resisting when he was shot. And other witnesses claimed that Jamar was lying still on the ground, he was restrained, he had his hands behind his back, or his hands were up in the air when police shot him. Again, we can't be sure what exactly happened, but we do know that everything happened very fast. It was about one minute between their first interaction with Jamar and when he was shot. He was taken to Hennepin County Medical Center, but died the next day on November 16, 2015. Jamar was 24 years old. Immediately after the shooting, both of the officers were placed on administrative leave and an investigation was started. In March of 2016, one of three investigations were completed. The first was completed by the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. They concluded that the officers acted in self-defense and would not face criminal charges. On June 1st, 2016, the United States Justice Department announced that, quote, The independent federal investigation into the fatal shooting of Jamar Clark on November 15, 2015, found insufficient evidence to support federal criminal civil rights charges against Minneapolis Police Department officers Mark Riggenberg and Dustin Schwartz, end quote. In October of that same year, the Minneapolis Police Department concluded their internal investigation. They said that the officers did not violate department policies and won't be disciplined. Because of these decisions, the officers were able to get off of desk duty and back to active duty and back in the streets of Minneapolis. By May of 2019, the attempts to reach a settlement had failed. 
and they had originally asked for $20 million, but the city had refused to pay out that amount. By August of 2019, the lawyers for Jamar's family were able to reach a tentative settlement with the city of Minneapolis for about $200,000. Jamar's family said that they wanted justice and they believe that this deal is not justice. They want the city to fire one of the officers involved in the shooting and they'd also like to see a community center named after Jamar. And that family was the story of Jamar Clark. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for Hudspod. And you can support the show by going to buymeacoffee.com slash Hudspod. Remember, Hudspod is spelled H-E-D-S-P-O-D. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. And if you don't mind, please leave me a five-star review. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week.